And welcome to the podcast of Tech EU. This is our episode number 150, recorded on January 3rd, 2020. I am your host, Andrew Degler, joined by Natalie Novik. Hey, Natalie, how was life? Happy New Year. Hi, Andrew. Happy New Year. Great to be back. Good to see you. So how does it, uh, how did it go for you? How does it feel to be in 2020? We just had a, a long conversation about whether it's artificial or not, but do you feel different? No, but I feel much better now that my in-laws have gone home, but maybe a little worse because my parents took my laptop cable home with them and it cost a hundred pounds to replace. So what's the, what's the new year resolution on that? Always check your parents' uh, bags before they leave? Well, I didn't think I would have to, but maybe, maybe for the next time I will check. I've just arrived uh, back home uh, yesterday from uh, my hometown. I will certainly check if I have forgotten something over there and uh, we'll have to replace it. So it's been it's been a really quiet week though. I I, I just uh, finished with our newsletter for uh, for the week and like almost nothing really happened. Uh, just maybe fifteen uh, funding deals, uh, three acquisition stories, and maybe ten other types of stories. Everybody has been sleeping. No, I think people have been taking a really necessary break from the from the new year um, and really taking that time to recharge. Well, I hope so anyway. Well, and so and so did we in a way, but uh, still it doesn't mean that we want to do this uh, episode because there is certainly a bunch of things to talk about. Actually, I'm uh, going through our notes for the uh, day and it seems like we've got a lot of things to talk about and discuss. So I will I will start then. And the uh, first thing I saw this week and really found interesting is the story that uh, Russia's Federal Anti-Monopoly Service, or FAS, has opened an investigation into Booking.com. And the investigation is about something that the company has been doing one way or the other for at least 10 years already. Namely, uh, the FAS has taken an issue with the fact that Booking.com always demands from the hotels... Uh, on the platform to always list the lowest price there. So simply speaking, in Booking.com's view, it should not be possible for a customer to get a room or a bed or an apartment or whatever in a hotel for less than listed on Booking.com. So my understanding is that violating this clause may lead to hotels being penalized uh, or uh, even excluded from the platform. And I'm pretty sure that uh, Booking.com has been doing this like forever. Uh, So I'm a little bit surprised that this comes up only now. I have one guess why it could have been like this, but I will talk about it a little bit later. So for now, I also need to make a really quick disclosure. I used to work for Booking.com for a number of years as a translator, but I don't do that anymore. There is no link between myself and the company anymore. Uh, not since 2015 or something. So back to this story. Uh, the FAS issued a warning uh, to Booking.com back in November and about uh, this violation, but the company did not react to it and hence the launch of a formal investigation now. If the FAS will conclude that uh, Booking.com violates the anti-monopoly regulation in Russia, the company will have to pay anywhere from 1% to 15% of the revenue generated in the country. 
And I'm not really sure whether it's for one year or for all time or uh, how exactly this is calculated, but the number is just this, 1% to 15% of the revenue. Now, let me try to add some context to this debate because it turns out that there is actually quite a bit of it. A whole lot has been going on with these uh, kind of clauses that are, that are called uh, price parity provisions uh, of Booking.com and uh, other online travel agents or OTAs in the European Union. And the first investigations into these kind of things started in 2010 uh, when uh, uh, Booking.com actually ended up offering some concessions. And the final agreement was reached in 2015. At least it happened in France, in Italy and in Sweden. Uh, the gist of this agreement was that Booking.com would abandon the so-called wide price parity clauses, but keep the narrow ones. Uh, earlier this year, by the way, Germany also allowed these narrow clauses to exist, but they were banned uh, there before. So now it's uh, at least France, Italy and Sweden where Booking.com is allowed to do the narrow clause. And the narrow clauses are different uh, from the wide ones in that the hotel in question would only be prohibited from offering better conditions publicly on its own website, but would be permitted to do that on other aggregators and, for example, as part of its loyalty program, as long as this sort of thing is not being marketed publicly. So... Basically, as a hotel, you would be allowed, for example, to send a newsletter to a bunch of people who have already stayed in this hotel and say that uh, you can get uh, lower prices and the price would be actually lower than a booking.com. That's now permitted. And the idea here is that the hotels would not be able to free ride on the platform of booking.com in this way, but at the same time, different aggregators would be incentivized to compete and offer lower commissions, which eventually would result in uh, better offers uh, for the customers. And judging by what I read in the statement by the FAS, in Russia, Booking.com is currently still applying the wide clauses, which prohibit hotels to offer a better price anywhere outside of the platform. So my understanding here is that this whole situation will simply end up in Booking.com switching from wide to the narrow clauses in Russia. And generally speaking, and here comes my take on this whole thing, in this controversy, I see the point of both sides, but I would rather probably side with uh, with booking because of course hoteliers they want to be in control of their pricing and i have also heard repeatedly that uh, they may be unhappy uh, with uh, having to pay booking a sizable cut uh, from every uh, from every transaction on the platform and i totally understand that but on the other hand booking.com actually to me at least adds quite a bit of value uh, for uh, end customers in the form of uh, customer support first of all so every time I book a hotel, which I don't do that often, but still, every time I do it, I do it through Booking.com just because I feel confident that whatever crap happens on the ground, it will all be solved by the support people and at least I will not end up on the street. So in addition to that, of course, there is a whole lot of translators and editors who make sure that the hotel information is always up to date and it's available in language the customers understand and so on and so forth. So with that in mind, I see how not having the lowest possible price on the platform may hurt the business of Booking.com or any other online travel agent. And it doesn't seem that unreasonable to me, honestly. So I know that it's often possible to get a marginally better deal if you, for example, call the hotel directly. But I don't usually do that uh, just because kind of I know what I'm paying for. So it could be a tough one to understand here, but I would generally side with the, side with the company. So Natalie, how about yourself? What do you think? Who's, uh, who's right? Who's wrong here? 
So I think it's really important in instances like this to go back to why we have these anti-monopoly clauses in the first place. And ultimately, at the heart of anti-monopoly clause is protection of the consumer and to ensure that consumers get the best value and the, the best opportunity. What this seems to be doing in some case, it seems to advantage the business case necessarily more than the consumer case. Because what you see here is there's actually a lot of opaque dealing happening when it comes to what your hotel fare actually is. And the market price is very changeable. And I think by having uh, ensuring the lowest price on booking.com, that helps bring a bit of transparency to a process that seems a bit tangible. And I think I would also side with booking here is that if you, if the price is always subject to change and always continually moving around, that ultimately is not great for the consumer either. So yeah, I, I'm with you um, to side with booking, but maybe not for the same reasons that, that you also <laughs> side with them. And speaking of prices, by the way, I actually decided to omit, uh, uh, there was, was one more story on uh, booking.com from two weeks ago. There was another investigation into the company uh, by the European Union authorities, and uh, that was about its practices on how it shows prices, how it shows discounts, and uh, certain manipulative techniques that uh, Booking.com uses on its platform to kind of make people book faster and uh, like finish the booking process if they started it and so on and so forth. Like if, if you have been to Booking.com website, you probably know what I mean here. Yeah. And that being said, while I do uh, agree with booking in, in the first case, um, in the second case, you know, they aren't my favorite tech company in Europe. I have a lot of problems with them, actually. Just recently, they they encouraged us to purchase a car insurance for a rental car that actually wasn't honored by the rental car dealership. This is actually a very frequent um, occurrence. You buy the complete insurance package on the site, but this isn't something that's honored by the um, Europe car in this case. So that's something. Um, and also you mentioned they have a lot of um, value end for customers. I think their customer service is a complete disaster. Booking got me in a lot of trouble in Mexico once. So they're not my favorite company in that case. They've done a lot for women in tech, though. So I appreciate their efforts on that side. But with all these companies, when you get to a certain size, of course, there's always going to be things that you like and you don't like. But I would generally in this case, I think for the anti-monopoly case, you know, I'd side with them. Yeah, for sure. Interesting, by the way. So my customer experience uh, with support team has always been pretty good. And I never purchased anything but hotels uh, uh, through the website. But but this this just sucks, though, that, that, that you pay for something and then... It's, it's actually quite a, a very well-known tactic, but I will say that the prices for the rental cars were, were quite affordable compared <laughs> to what the market um, was offering. But we did end up spending about £34 extra in insurance that wasn't applicable and we had to buy an extra insurance when we picked the car up at the counter. Great. So for you, the listener, uh, your mileage may vary with any aspect of <laughs> booking.com that we're talking about. But generally, maybe it makes sense not to go for uh, full insurance through booking.com, <laughs> at least for now. Well, always ask questions and um, really look at everything with a critical eye. Um, and that's something that we felt pressured to purchase the um, insurance right away, that it was making it easier. 
And um, it turns out it wasn't something that that we could could use and had to to buy something else. So always um, be be an informed consumer, and and maybe you can learn from from my mistake. <laughs> yeah, this sort of pressure to purchase something like on the website. This is just the dark patterns, right? This is uh, what's called dark patterns on the web. And when you have all sorts of pop up notifications that someone has booked this room just like uh, five minutes ago, and someone looked at this hotel, and there are like ten people uh, who are waiting to book this room most probably on different dates and so on and so forth. This is just bullshit though. No, no, not a great way to uh, deal with your customers. But anyway, so Booking.com is uh, certainly facing some pressure uh, by the Russian anti-monopoly authorities and it will now have to comply with the European Union's decision to penalize it for the manipulative uh, tactics uh, used on the website. Now, Natalie, you again are bringing something more positive uh, than, uh, uh, than I am for, to, to the episode, aren't you? <laughs> Well, I hope to do that um, every week. And it's just so great to be back on the podcast in 2020. And I hope everyone has had such a restful and energizing start of the new year. And I think, as you were mentioning earlier, Andre, that um, there wasn't a whole lot of news that was going on. And I think that's something we can really appreciate about this holiday season, whether you celebrate or not. But especially in Europe, things do tend to slow down quite a bit, especially when it comes to news and breaking tech stories. And I think we're all pretty grateful for this chance to catch up and also for this opportunity to look back, reflect, and think about how we want to start the new year. So I wanted to share something that I've been thinking about, especially because the holiday travel season for many of us, I just mentioned my rental car fiasco earlier. Um, for many of you, it might have also involved spending some time on the road. And while we talk a lot about transport technologies on a lot on this program, in Europe, there are still a lot of cars and drivers on the road. So there's over 260 million passenger cars on the continent um, being driven around and lots more commercial vehicles. So last year, I had the chance to attend a really interesting event in Slovenia, which was dedicated to the theme of autonomous driving. And while I was there, I had the chance to meet Violetta Bulk, who was the then European Commissioner for Transport. And she was speaking about the European Union's Vision Zero policy. And this might not be something that you're aware of or know anything about, but I wanted to share a little bit about it because I think it's really interesting. Vision Zero is the European Commission's pledge to completely eliminate deaths on European roads by 2050. And to do this, the Commission has been working with road safety authorities across all member states to work together to eliminate road crashes and build the world's most safest transportation infrastructure. And what we've been seeing is that their work has really been paying off. And a recent report from the International Transport Forum and the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development has just found that the EU does today have the safest road system in the world. But this wasn't an accident and it wasn't always the case because for a long time it was the US that had the world's safest roads. But the European Union has continued to develop better standards and get member states to continually contribute to safety initiatives. And this incremental but continual approach has been working. And a case in point, which is a new program that was just announced and instituted last fall, the EU Road Safety Exchange, which is a partnership project between member countries in Europe to share best practices and continue to improve. 
something that we see is that technology has a really big part to play when it comes to road safety. First, we might think of some of the negative impacts, such as distracted driving from cell phones, which is a prime causal factor in many road accidents, but also new technologies such as e-scooters or something else that further complicates our streets and could be a potential agitator to the EU's mission zero um, future. But I think here, and especially in Europe, we're seeing how technology has often been at the forefront of building safer conditions for road users, whether it is through safer road infrastructure, policy, or vehicle safety. And one example is the Automotus app which is a smartphone app that was launched in 2016 to prevent distracted driving. It was one of the winners of last year's European Road Safety Charter Awards and helps prevent drivers from using their cell phones on the road. So this was launched in the Netherlands. And this product from a large insurance provider helps illustrate just one example of some of the solutions that are being developed on the private side to build more safer road infrastructure. And startups across the continent have been working on some really interesting solutions. And I wanted to share a few of them with you. And the first, which it comes along the lines of the Automotis app, is called Ellis Car. And they're from France. And the app is an in-car driving coach for your phone. It uses artificial intelligence to make an analysis of your driving in terms of both safety and fuel economy. You can even receive real-time voice alerts while you're driving. And it can send you a report each week to indicate how you're improving. The app also allows you to turn your smartphone into a dash cam to help visualize what's happening on the road and later to put your driving in context. But if you're not a car driver, instead, if you're choosing to take an e-scooter or bike on your travels, a startup you might want to check out is called Cosmo Connected. And they build a connected helmet for bikes and scooters that has a brake light that's integrated into it. And it helps improve visibility of those riders to cars and other road users. They also have a corresponding app, which allows you to, to show turn signals on your helmet to other users of the road. But along with improved visibility and better driving skills, one of the biggest factors that has contributed to fewer road accidents has come from solutions that help lessen the amount of drivers on the road through autonomous solutions and also by promoting shared mobility. And when it comes to shared mobility, Europe has seen really the big potential of this with unicorns such as Blah Blah Car and Flixbus paving the way for a number of years now. But there's still a lot of room for innovation. And as French startup AutoCab is demonstrating with their shared autonomous electric minivans for suburban commuters, this company identifies itself as a SASAAS, which is a safe autonomy as a service company. So maybe that's the next acronym we need to add to our vocabulary. One of the more interesting startups that I think you should keep your eye on has just been awarded this year. So this week, 2020's Best of Innovation Award at the Consumer Electronics Show. And they're called Valoran and they're from the UK. And they've worked to make roads smart by using integrated sensor technology, which is built into the road itself. The closed loop system allows the road to be an active part of the mobility ecosystem. And the company was founded in 2016. And since then, they've gained incredible momentum, winning prizes from South Summit's most disruptive startup in 2018 to being named one of Europe's leading GovTech startups. 
It will be pretty exciting to see where they go because the market for good technology around road safety is huge. The growing insertech industry, which was one of 2019's biggest fintech trends, and also we see um, it in funding deals as well. In August of last year, Zendrive, which is a San Francisco-based startup that uses IoT sensors to understand driver behavior, they raised a $37 million Series B round. But it's not just VCs that are investing big into these technologies. As with anything in the mobility space, it's also the big auto manufacturers that aren't being left behind. So German automaker Porsche was one of the lead investors into Israeli startup TriEyes, $19 million Series A round. They've developed a shortwave infrared sensing technology that helps support safe driving in adverse weather conditions. So across Europe and across the world, this is a huge space to follow, but also one that benefits all of us that are using the roads to get around. And it's a great example of both how the public sector and the private sector are both building solutions that make the world a bit better for everyone. And I think everyone can appreciate that. That sounds great. So from all these uh, descriptions, I'm certainly most fascinated by uh, by Valoran I think because I've I've been waiting for some sort of smart infrastructure to uh, start uh, taking off uh, for years now but I think it's just it's just so slow it's just so hard and it's so difficult and it seems like very few people dare to uh, start uh, start systematically working on something like this so I think it's it's been a project that's been in the works for some time now. Um, they were founded a number of years ago, and yeah. they're really starting to get the attention and the notoriety. And I think we're going to see lots of things on the horizon from companies like that are working on these integrated solutions. But those GovTech requires both the public and the private side to be working together. And they are one of those few companies that really has um, put both of those sides together. Are they working in the UK? Do they have any sort of pilots? Do you know? Their pilots all now are are in Israel, right. um, but they also have SoftBank is paying attention to them. And so um, some really exciting things I think will will come on the horizon for sure. That's a good sign. That's always a good sign. <laughs> Okay, let me try to redeem myself and uh, bring a uh, more positive uh, news story in because I had uh, two for today. I just couldn't choose, so I decided to do both. And the second one is shorter. And uh, what I wanted to talk about now is that uh, Google is abandoning the controversial tax optimization practice uh, that's commonly known as a double Irish Dutch sandwich. So uh, Google appears to be the last of the big international tech corporations to stop using this one because some other companies have already abandoned the practice. But it's not like uh, they were very altruistic about it. They just didn't have much choice because the Irish tax authorities pressured by the European Union are closing this uh, loophole uh, that makes this practice possible at the end of 2020, either way. So in case you've missed it, uh, the main idea of the double Irish is uh, that uh, the corporation would move a big portion of taxable income to an Irish registered company that is located in a tax haven like Bermuda. And this way, the corporate taxes for this money would be 
be deferred, as far as I understand, pretty much indefinitely. And this is often done uh, through another company that would be registered in the Netherlands. That's what uh, the Dutch sandwich is. Uh, since the tax law here in the, in the Netherlands allows for this kind of transactions to happen without any additional taxes being withheld. So companies from the US have been doing this for years in order to avoid the 35% corporate income tax in the States. And uh, over these years, they have amassed uh, hundreds of billions of US dollars in those uh, tax havens. Now, after the tax reform executed by the Trump administration, uh, the corporate tax rate has gone down to 15.5%, uh, which has also, as far as I understand, become an encouragement for uh, some of the big tech companies to simplify their tax arrangements and repatriate uh, some money. For example, Apple said back in 2018 that it would bring some 252 billion US dollars back home over the course of the next five years. So it's still got three years to go. Uh, this story, however, does not necessarily mean uh, that the big tech corporates are about to stop optimizing their taxes or start uh, paying more taxes or start paying taxes where they're due. But it's just about this one uh, notorious uh, loophole that's about to cease to exist, which some call the end of an era. And there's plenty more, though. And let me quote uh, Chris Sanchirico, a law professor at the University of Pennsylvania, who talked to the Financial Times about this topic. The quote begins, based on what we have been able to see in the past, there is no reason to think that planning by multinationals hasn't already evolved several generations beyond the kind of classic double Irish that is now officially coming to an end. The quote ends. And of course, let's not forget the effort by the OECD and EU member states to update the way that taxation works for multinational companies and particularly for uh, tech companies like Facebook and Amazon and Google that operate in Europe. And all in all, as far as I understand, this is far from over and I'm not really sure if it's ever going to be over at all. And I think I just failed miserably at uh, bringing a positive news story to this episode. I'm sorry. <laughs> Natalie, are you happy about the end of Double Irish? I'm not happy about it in the in the sense that it wasn't brought about by something altruistic or it wasn't brought about by the quote unquote right reasons. It was because the U.S. decided to lower its corporate tax rates that these companies decided, you know, well, maybe we won't pursue this current loophole and we'll, we'll execute another one. So what it might encourage Ireland to have a bit more teeth when it comes to prosecuting and working with big tech companies, but I'm not quite so sure. Yeah, I wouldn't really count on it either. Well, anyway, I just hope that uh, this Whatever new tactics uh, the corporates uh, come up with, uh, they will at least be reported on so that we at least know what's happening. It, we're probably going to see it. But also, this is the this is the other thing, which I think is really challenging, is that when we see practices like the double Irish go on or we see things where we have these big tech companies avoiding taxation or avoiding responsibility in different ways, it is very hard for the consumer to put these companies to account. As much as we might like to stop using Google or Amazon or Facebook in a lot of cases, it's sometimes 
impossible. And normally in the past, you would be able, the market would allow you to decide you'd be able to find an alternative, but we don't have those options today quite in the same way. So I'm not really sure where this necessarily gets us. I mean, we can observe, we can see, um, oversee what's going on. We can complain about it. We can be unhappy about it. But at the end of the day, we're going to go back to opening our uh, Google Mail and using Google Search and uh, using all of these different apps and services. I have several of them open on my screen right now. So I think it does put the consumer in a really challenging position because we don't have the opportunity to take these companies to account. And we really need to depend on our public institutions to do that for us. And that is very increasingly um, more and more challenging for them to do. Yeah. And it's not getting better, is it? No. And as as I, I mentioned last week, really the, the difficulty of a com- country like Ireland being able to prosecute and hold um, these multinational uh, companies to account is really difficult and challenging for them because ultimately they depend on these companies being headquartered um, in on in their territory and all the benefits that are accrued by that. And so I think it puts the public authorities under a lot of pressure and consumers ultimately lack a lot of power that they might have had um, with other types of business where it was simply, well, I can use an alternative. Um, so I think I think this is something that I'm going to continue, definitely going to continue to follow in the new 2020s. Um, and I hope that that we have a better solution and that our public institutions are able able to because consumers ultimately what you see increasingly that they have less and less power than ever before, um, especially when it comes to big tech companies. Yeah, that, that's true. And just for the record, I just I, I think I never asked, where are you on this uh, debate uh, uh, regarding uh, the breakdown of big tech companies? Do you think it should happen? I, I think it's a very nuanced argument. And I think it's also very attractive for people to say, oh, well, let's break up all of these big tech companies. Well, in some cases, it, it makes sense. In other cases, it doesn't. I don't think it ever really is appropriate to apply these blanket um, statements to either case, but it is very clear as we've seen and we've mentioned on this podcast multiple times before that a lot of the public policy just hasn't been able to keep up and evolve and hold these companies to account. And if we, if we can think back to the U.S. authorities, um, interviewing Mark Zuckerberg in Congress and really kind of that real display, uh, that was, um, it seemed very, very limited in terms of how they of them even understanding what what was even going on and just to take the facebook example again when the british parliament asked facebook to come and and speak and um respond to some some of their queries facebook just, just and mark zuckerberg just decided not to come and they were um perfectly able to do that so what we've seen our institutions can't keep up with with big tech companies public uh, authorities are really struggling to find account. And that's why we really depend on supranational institutions, especially the European Union, uh, to be the ones of um, making, making these, taking this role on. And that's why it's so important. And I think that's also why we bring it up on the podcast so frequently is because the European Union has an opportunity to hold these companies to account in a way that our domestic authorities who we've 
traditionally come to depend on um, to do that for us um, can't. So I um, I think that that's something we're going to need to continue to follow and also why their role is so important nowadays. And there is a bunch of things going on right now, like investigations and all. So I do hope that we're going to see more of this in this new year. Anyway, let us talk about something that everyone has an opinion on. <laughs> and this time that would be grammar and language. So that's uh, my recommendation for today. And I think I'm going to fail miserably again trying to bring something positive. It's going to be a rant. I'm sorry. It's going to be a short one. Uh, I'm really interested about uh, uh, your uh, opinion on this, Natalie. So uh, let us start. So the recommendation for today. I wanted to highlight an opinion piece on the New York Times that I actually don't agree with. I think it's a good, it's a good exercise. Uh, the piece is titled, uh, We Learned to Write the Way We Talk. And it's uh, authored by Gretchen McCullough. Uh, in the piece, she raises a great topic of how our conversational written language has evolved over time and whether conveying emotions in writing is more important than grammatical correctness. Uh, there is now a lot of ways, uh, in case you missed it, and these ways are mostly used by younger generations uh, to convey subtle emotional messages uh, in writing. Uh, so, And uh, those uh, range from, let's say, altering the capitalization of words in a sentence to just basically omitting the period at the end of the sentence and stuff like that. And I'm totally fine with that kind of thing even though I may find it awful looking in many circumstances. But what I'm less fine with is that the embracing of this new way of writing seems to, in many cases, marginalize the way of writing that I myself consider normal, that is, writing with correct punctuation and correct grammar. Uh, it kind of looks like the people who do most of their writing in the quote-unquote emotional way tend to see the so-called conventional way as a dry, formal, or even passive-aggressive. Uh, you can check out uh, uh, the this week's uh, this week Friday's uh, XKCD comic uh, strip uh, which talks about uh, this particular issue but that thing triggers me a little bit really and my point here is that we shouldn't really forget that the emotional quote unquote again writing only works among a relatively small group of people also it changes a lot between different subgroups of people uh, while the conventional writing remains the same. So in my thinking, uh, we want the writing to be a universal way to deliver a message to as many people as possible. And this sort of emotional writing totally defeats this purpose. Also, I would argue that the idea that you cannot convey emotions in writing without employing weird capitalization and weird symbols and punctuation marks often stems from lack of writing skills. So to cut short this rant, uh, I, I know you're tired of me already. I don't like how the emotional writing undermines and marginalizes the normal one. But at the same time, I'm not against the idea of this sort of emotional writing. And also, I have to say that it is certainly not something that has only emerged uh, right now. Uh, just before we started recording this episode, I went uh, into my inbox and found a 13-year-old email thread uh, in which I talked to an acquaintance of mine uh, from another city uh, with whom we we were involved in organizing a big uh, convention uh, back in the day. And uh, the email thread was uh, went like this. It was in Russian, so I just translated it. Uh, first of all, uh, this acquaintance, she asked me uh, something like, uh, like,
like that. Uh, Andre, are you mad about something or are you just tired? And then I replied, no, I'm not so mad at all. I'm just tired. And uh, what made you think that I'm mad? And then she answered, I have just noticed that there hasn't been any swear words and smileys uh, in your emails. So it really got me worried. So this is an <laughs> example of emotional writing uh, kind of scenario emerging in 2006. But uh, I still think that we should understand the difference between the two and not marginalize the conventional grammatically correct sort of writing. Natalie, I don't think I don't think we texted enough uh, for me to understand whether you're an emotional writer or not, but uh, where are you in this uh, conversation? What do you think? So I think I'll need to read uh, the piece to really understand the context and really how it, it how it applies. But I think ultimately writing is supposed to convey message and it's supposed to communicate. And if what you're trying to communicate is expressed better in an emotional way, if you're, it makes a better connection, I don't really have a, a, a problem with that. And I, I'm not necessarily triggered by it. I think context is often very difficult to firsthand. And it reminds me, I think I, I wrote a, a message on, on Twitter and of trying to express sympathy with them. Um, and they thought I was um, a, intending something very different, actually something very quite different. And, and it, it really put me in a, in a very bad position for a number of days because I wasn't able to express myself in the way that I thought I was being clear about. And so I think, I think it's hard. And I also think that writing and communication is something that's always changing. And if some traditional type of writing is too formal for some people, I think it's fair that things are changing. I mean, we have kind of emoji keyboards now that we didn't necessarily have. And if that gets your point across in a in a more effective way than um, writing in proper English or whatever language that that you're speaking in, I don't necessarily have a problem with it. By the way, I really, I, I realized recently that I, I, I... Just I just suck at uh, using emojis uh, the right way. I kind of I don't know what emojis are there at all, and uh, I just don't know what's uh, what's a good context to use them. So I kind of uh, I've given up uh, mostly. Do you use a lot of emojis in your texting? Uh, no, not necessarily. But maybe the amount of emojis I use, according to some people, is excessive, um, <laughs> and I think that. Kind of, and that's kind of speaks to this point about communication is is evolving, and that we might be continually um, learning and kind of pushing the boundaries and and the barriers here um, in ways that we might um, we might never have thought of. But I think in some ways emojis allow us to communicate possibly across languages and to express ourselves with people from different cultures and contexts in a way that just using words might not express quite as well. Yeah. But it's an interesting thing to think about. Yeah, it's a very, it's a very big topic, and uh, I'm sure that uh, there is uh, more to it. And also, uh, the author of this opinion piece that I linked to, uh, she is uh, also the author of a whole book about uh, these uh, changes in uh, communication, changes in um, writing uh, that these uh, text messaging uh, services has brought uh, about. So I'm definitely going to going to read that one, and I will add a link to the book to the show notes as well. Now, Natalie, what did you want to talk about? Yeah, so my recommendation is a little bit different, and it comes from the MIT Technology Review, and it's titled Meet the Wannabe Kidfluencers Struggling for Stardom. <laughs> and what it's about is some of these young people um, from around the world, it profiles them um, 
young people under the age of 18 from Europe, Africa, Asia, who are all trying to work at become influencers and failing at it. So they're um, on YouTube, they're putting out vlogs. Um, and as everyone listening to this probably knows quite intimately, not everyone is going to be a success on the internet. But for kids and young people seeing their heroes every day through vlogs, um, it's quite an interesting phenomenon. And I think a lot of you see a lot of idealism there. And there was a recent survey that got quite a lot of press a number of weeks ago that kind of found that young people from the UK and the US, their number one job um, was to be an influencer um, of one of their, their desired professions. What um, this piece um, is really quite illustrative, but it also made me feel quite old because it underscores really how different childhood in the 2020s now, um, how it is now as compared to when I was growing up. And it makes you realize just how different things are today and how technology really has been um, quite a big part of it. And some of the new challenges that brings and especially how our parents dealing with it and the difficulties they have um, really trying to navigate this really this landscape that's changing quite all the time. Um, and it, I found it very fascinating um, insight into a world that I hadn't thought a lot about, but really does have quite a big impact on our lives. And especially when you think about the next generation. Um, so do check that out. Really, really interesting piece. Yeah, that's another huge topic. But is it even a word now, kidfluencer? It is, especially because some of the most popular YouTubers are um, young children. And it also is part of how um, YouTube has changed their monetization strategy um, because you have one, I think it was an eight-year-old child who had one of the most popular YouTube channels of all time. And kind of what, what wow. does that do to someone and how they cope with that and how they really understand what influence is and what that means and having um, kind of really this microscope over their lives and the pressure that comes from feeling like they need to produce something really quite remarkable how things have got to where they are. Um, I know, Andre, you you speak a lot about kind of this nostalgia for the old internet. And I do too. A lot of the time I think about how it was before social media and kind of what happened to forums and all of these things where there was a greater deal of anonymity online. Um, and that's not what things are like anymore. And I wonder what kind of the future will bring um, on that horizon. So really, really interesting. Yeah, I'm really bad at forecasting this sort of thing, but uh, I do feel that this whole sort of paradigm just has to change, has to change in a very radical way that we don't necessarily can predict at the moment. I think in 2030, uh, the whole social media, the whole influencing uh, thing is going to somehow be very different. No idea how, though. Anyway, if you have any particular ideas about how this uh, uh, might be, do let us know on email or Twitter or in any other way uh, known to you. As as a but for now, this is it for our today's podcast. It's time to wrap it up. I do hope you enjoyed listening to us today. And if you did, tell a friend or colleague about the show and follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore EU. If you are not a subscriber yet, subscribe to this show today on your favorite podcast app. Audio engineering for this 
This podcast is done by SoundPulse. That is sound-pulse.com. Please feel free again to email us with any questions, suggestions, and opinions at Andri at TechEU and Natalie at TechEU. Natalie, always a pleasure talking to you. Happy New Year again. Enjoy your weekend. Thanks so much, Andri. Thank you for listening. Enjoy the week, and we're going to talk to you next Monday. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>